2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Lions and rhinos and bears, not at the local zoo. I'm talking about well-preserved ancient animals. Their carcasses uncovered in Siberia in permafrost, the permanently frozen land in the Arctic that's now thawing in areas. Today, where we live, we hear from scientists about these amazing discoveries. The latest was an Ice Age bear found by reindeer herders in Russia last month. But permafrost thawing has major consequences for our planet. And we can't forget about the people who live in the Arctic and whose homes and livelihoods have also been affected. Joining me now on Zoom is Dr. Sue Natale. She's Arctic Program Director and a scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center, formerly known as the Woods Hole Research Center in Massachusetts. Sue, welcome to our show.
3: Thank you. Good morning, Lucy.
2: And you can also join our conversation, eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven, 720 9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Sue, I understand you're an Arctic ecologist, so you're doing research in both Alaska and Siberia. I was talking with my producer, Carmen, about how we would both love to go to the Arctic one day. Many people will never visit, but can you describe this place for us and what it looks like and feels like?
3: Yeah, sure. I could probably talk about that for several hours because <laughs> one thing, um, one thing, you know, we tend to think about the Arctic as a place. You know, mm-hmm. we think about tundra and a treeless mm-hmm. place, and it's actually really diverse. I mean, some parts of the Arctic are are very rocky um, with very little vegetation, and some areas are tundra with without trees and low-growing vegetation. Um, very spongy ground because there's a lot of mosses that grow there. And then there are other places in the Arctic, particularly large areas of the Russian Arctic that are covered in trees. Um, One of the sort of features that kind of crosses all of these different types of ecosystems is the permafrost. Mm. So tell
2: us more about permafrost. What is it exactly? Exactly.
3: Yeah, so permafrost is perennially frozen ground. So the official definition of permafrost is it's ground that remains below zero Celsius or 32 Fahrenheit for two or more consecutive years. Um, That ground can contain any material. So it's defined by the thermal condition. So it can contain soil or ice or rock or sediment or dead animal carcasses. Um, All of these are components of the permafrost layer.
2: Mm. And so if we were to visit, uh, say, parts of Alaska or even Siberia, uh, from for a casual viewer, you may not be able to see permafrost unless you're drilling down. And so how far
3: deep does it go? Um, so the the top of the permafrost layer can be very close to the ground surface Mm. um, in some cases just a foot down so you could pretty easily you know dig a hole and reach your hand down and touch this frozen ground Um, the thickness of the permafrost itself really varies depending on where you are in the arctic so it can be anywhere in warmer periods uh, places of the arctic or the subarctic it can be you know a few feet in thickness to up to you know a half mile deep Um, So it can be, as again, the Arctic is a really large place and the permafrost region is really diverse and covers sort of a lot of area with um, quite a bit of a temperature range. So we have a lot of variability in the depth to permafrost and the thickness of the permafrost itself.
2: Mm. I mentioned earlier that parts of the permafrost are thawing, and that's impacting the people who live in the Arctic. Can you talk more about these indigenous communities? And as we hear about the thawing, how that's impacting where they live?
3: Yeah, so, you know, I think for some, in some places of the planet who haven't yet been directly Feeling the impacts of climate change, I think those places are are decreasing. Um, it may be hard to think about the fact that the climate has been changing, um, and people are being impacted and have been for many years in the Arctic. And you know, one of the things that's I think quite unique about climate change in the Arctic is that when the permafrost—it's not just getting warmer, but when mm-hmm. the permafrost thaws, um, the ground can actually collapse. So, you know, if you think about there's ice in the permafrost and when the ice melts and turns from ice to water, you're losing the ground structure. And so you can imagine what that means if you had a house on top of permafrost and the ground started to sink. Um, you know, there's also a lot of gas and oil infrastructure and roads. And so what this means is that people and communities who are living in areas where the permafrost has already started to thaw is that they're continuously having to jack their houses up Mm -hmm. to keep them level. Um, People are having to move houses, whole communities are having to make really, really difficult decisions about moving from places where they've lived for hundreds and thousands of years.
2: Again, you're hearing Dr. Sue Natali, Arctic Program Director and Scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center, as we learn more about permafrost and the impacts of uh, it thawing in places uh, like Alaska and Siberia. Uh, Sue, I wanted you to talk more about you know we think about this as frozen land, but as it thaws, what is the material that is that is in the permafrost that we're that we're not thinking about necessarily uh, beyond ice?
3: Yeah, so. Um there's a lot of carbon in permafrost, and I think that it's the it's i think that it's the carbon that's in the permafrost which mm-hmm. is why it makes it so important for everyone on the planet. Um, and when I say a lot of carbon, like, I mean, a lot of carbon. So the current estimate is about one to one and a half trillion tons of carbon that's in permafrost. And that's such a huge number. It's it's even hard for me to wrap my head around what a trillion means. And so just to give you some context, it's twice as much carbon that's stored in the permafrost region as is in the atmosphere. And three times as much carbon stored in permafrost region as in all of the world's forest biomass. Um, So this carbon is currently, for the most part, in a frozen state. It's in the form of organic material. So that's just, if you just think about your rich organic rich soil or your compost. um, When that organic material thaws, it then becomes available for microbes who, break it down, they use it for energy. And the byproducts of that process are two greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and methane. And it's these emissions of carbon dioxide and methane, um, and the potential for um, these emissions in the future is why this thawing of the permafrost makes it really relevant to everybody on the planet. Mm.
2: So talk more about that when we think about global warming, how much faster it's happening in the Arctic, Sue.
3: Yeah, so, you know, the Arctic is warming, you know, more than two times faster than the rest Mm -hmm. of the planet. And this is expected to continue into the future. Um, You know, at the Paris Agreement, the international community set a global sort of temperature threshold of two degrees Celsius, and the Arctic has already surpassed that. Um, So as I said, this is, these are changes that are happening now. Um, You know, there's a number of reasons why the Arctic is warming faster. Um, People call this Arctic amplification. I think one of the biggest ones is the fact that we're losing snow and ice in the Arctic and these very white surfaces that were reflecting the sun's energy um, are now absorbing it. You're getting these very dark oceans and these very dark ground surfaces that are now absorbing that, causing this regional warming in the Arctic. Mm.
2: So we're talking about parts of the landscape being devastated uh, by floods and the shifting, but there's also fires there. Sue, tell us more about that.
3: Yeah, I mean, this summer was um, a record year in the Arctic, once again, for a number of reasons. I mean, there was this record heat wave of 100 degrees Fahrenheit in Siberia, and then there were also record wildfires this year. Um, and these Wildfires that are happening across the Arctic and forested and in tundra regions and, and areas that have a lot of peat, so very very carbon-rich soils. Um, these are important for a couple of reasons. First, there's this sort of obvious initial pulse of carbon when you burn down trees. Um, in the Arctic, the fires also burn the soil because there's so much carbon there. Um, but the vegetation and the surface soil um, acts as a very good insulator for the permafrost. So in the summer, when you're getting these very warm temperatures, even up to hundred degrees Fahrenheit, um, they insulate the permafrost from these very warm temperatures. And so when you burn them off, it's like lifting the top off of a cooler on a hot Mm. summer day. And so now we have this sort of double um, problem, which is that not only are we having these very warm temperatures, but we're having these very warm temperatures. And we've also removed this sort of ecological cover or ecological insulator. causing the permafrost to, you know, warm twice as fast and thaw twice as fast, and also leading to some very abrupt thawing events where you can get pretty extreme ground collapse. Mm.
2: So in the sense, when we think about the thawing, it's a consequence of climate change, but also a driver of climate change because of the the emissions that you said, uh, the greenhouse gases that are uh, coming up from this, what was once a carbon sink.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it had been a carbon sink for tens of thousands of years. And, you know, we're at this point now where things are changing and this very ancient fossil carbon um, is now, you know, at risk of entering into the atmosphere and, you know, contributing to our global climate.
2: You can see photos of the permafrost thawing that uh, Sue's organization uh, shared with us again, the Woodwell Climate Research Center on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Sue, how um, how do scientists know when we think about the the parts of the permafrost thawing, how do they measure uh, the emissions? What are the traditional ways? And tell us more about the research you're doing.
3: Yeah, so I mean, there's a couple different ways you can measure emissions for the work that I do. i say I do it on the ground. And so um, when you're in tundra and you have short vegetation, you essentially can put a chamber over the ground and collect the gas and watch it change over time. And then you use those measurements and you would um, sort of use a model to integrate them over time in space. Um, The other way that we are measuring emissions is using um, eddy covariance towers. And again, this is measuring carbon dioxide uptake by vegetation and also emissions and methane emissions over a larger portion of the landscape. Um, The other ways that people measure it is you can also measure it from, we call this bottom up. So we're measuring it from the ground and then we're sort of extrapolating up to larger areas. You can also measure it from the atmosphere. Um, And in that case, people are measuring concentrations and from that using models to figure out you know, how much is coming out and how much is being taken up. And so we're combining all of these methods. So using on the ground me- measurements, using satellite data to help us to take these on the ground measurements and to figure out you know, what does this mean for the Pan-Arctic region? Because as I said, it's a really big region and you're not gonna get to every place in the Arctic to be able to measure the, how much carbon dioxide or, and methane is, is being exchanged with the atmosphere.
2: When we think about uh, these emissions coming from the permafrost, are they built into the the international models for the Paris Accord?
3: Yeah, so this is one of the biggest um, concerns as far as I see it in terms of carbon emissions from the permafrost. The last last, um, IPCC report, the models that went into that did not incorporate permafrost. Mm. Um, The models now are incorporating permafrost. Some of them are, but not all. Um, But they generally don't. Um, fully account for how permafrost thaws. So the models see permafrost as a top-down gradual process. So the air gets warm and the energy is transferred through the soil and gradually into the permafrost. In reality, though, we have, you know, disturbances such as wildfire that can make that happen rather than millimeters to centimeters per year, it can happen meters per year where you get these very abrupt thawing events. Um, And in cases where you have a lot of ice in the permafrost, again, you can get a ground collapse, which causes very um, rapid erosion and thawing of the permafrost. So um, the Modeling community is aware of these changes and permafrost is being incorporated into it, but I will say the policy community, um, this has not been accounted for when we're doing our global carbon accounting, say for trying to stay below two degrees Celsius.
2: Mm. So for listeners here in Connecticut, we may think that uh, this problem of permafrost thawing is so far from us. And can you make the case about why listeners here in our state should care about this?
3: Yeah, I mean, Well, I'd say we should care and we should also recognize that we can do something about it because carbon dioxide and methane are global greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. So emissions that come out from the permafrost region affect everyone in the planet because they go into the atmosphere and then they get mixed. Um, at the same time, the actions that we take here um, to reduce our fossil fuel emissions through, you know, our own personal actions, for our from actions of our organizations, from our states, and um, hopefully from our federal government, um, those also impact carbon emissions from the permafrost region. So we sort of, you know, can take actions on the ground here that will have a global impact.
2: Well, Sue, I want to thank you for joining where we live today to talk about uh, your research and the importance of permafrost and uh, the research finding uh, how much emissions are actually being released uh, because of this thawing. Dr. Sue Natalie again, is Arctic Program Director and scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center, formerly known as the Woods Hole Research Center in Massachusetts.
3: Sue, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Lucy, for having me here.
2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpithanchel. Coming up woolly mammoths and rhinos, lion cubs, and now an Ice Age bear. They lived tens of thousands of years ago, but some of them have been discovered in Siberia, well preserved in the permafrost. What can scientists learn from them? We'll talk about that after the break. You can join us too, 888 720 9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. When I was a kid, I was mesmerized when I saw illustrations of woolly mammoths in books. In recent years, researchers have been studying the actual remains of mammoths uncovered in Siberia, like Yuka, a juvenile woolly mammoth. From its size, it looks as though this mammoth was about three or four years old when it died. After thousands of years lying frozen in the ground, It's twisted and contorted. Now lying on its back, its head is flopped to one side and its legs stick up in the air. Its footpads and thick strawberry blonde hair are exquisitely preserved. That's from a BBC documentary about yucca in 2012. It was considered one of the best mammoth specimens ever found. There have been other Ice Age animal carcasses found, most recently a well-preserved bear in Russia. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Jacqueline Gill, Associate Professor of Paleoecology at the Climate Change Institute at University of Maine. Uh, Jacqueline, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Dr. Advite Zucker, vertebrate paleontologist at Yale University. Advite, welcome to our show. Thank
1: you. It's good to be here.
2: I wanted to start with Jacqueline. I wanted to ask you about the research trips you've taken. There was a moment, I believe, uh, when you were uh, on the way to see a mammoth foot. Can you describe what that was like?
0: Yeah, so we were uh, filming a documentary in uh, the Russian Far East um, and, you know, this vast portion of Siberia that uh, a lot of these really exciting finds have been coming out of. And I had been warned um, that we would be seeing some really incredible specimens. Uh, But, um, you know, I I was sort of holding my skepticism and I climbed up over this hill to see this place where we had been told there was a really well-preserved woolly mammoth carcass and the, there were these hoses, and people had been kind of clearing the ground, and I was just sort of sitting around waiting, trying to, you know, look around, not really seeing anything too exciting, and then I glanced over, and I saw a foot, mm. and uh, <clears throat> it, was a, it was an elephant foot, it was a woolly mammoth's foot, it was huge, it had skin and toes and, uh, you know, that reddish fur that we associate with these animals, and it just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I I have studied woolly mammoths and their impacts on ecosystems for my entire career, but I really feel like they didn't become real to me until that moment because I'm so used to seeing them, you know, in my mind's eye or from the clues that they leave behind and maybe occasionally their bones, but to see the flesh and the fur and realize, you know, this was... An individual. This was an individual who felt its last moments, who felt fear, um, who was aware of its own mortality, stuck in the in the mud um, as you know as it approached death. And it was just this moment of, of realization that it's not just the extinction of a species, but it's these individual stories of these incredible organisms, and that we as scientists have a duty to do right by them and to you know to make their death mean something. And so it was mm-hmm. a really powerful moment for me.
2: It sounds amazing. Uh, Advite, you're a paleontologist, again, uh, at Yale University. Uh, you study the Pleistocene, Pleistocene era. So take us back in time. What would have what would have our state of Connecticut looked like back then?
1: So the, the Pleistocene is actually a very long period of time, going from mm-hmm. about 2.6 million years all the way up to about 12,000 years mm-hmm. ago. And we typically th- uh, think of the Ice Age when we think of the Pleistocene, but there were actually... Over 25 different ice ages, Mm. what we're most familiar with is the last glacial period, which which spanned from about 100,000 years ago, all the way up to 12,000 years. At the at the peak of the glacial period, you had ice sheets that were about a mile thick, coming all the way up to New York. If you go into Central Park. You can actually see parts of the rock there which have been scraped over by the glaciers that have left marks on them. Uh, What you would have seen south of the ice, so sort of south of Connecticut, would have been a vast uh, plain uh, which would have been covered with grasses and hedges and shrubs. It's called the Mammoth Steppe.
2: So when we hear Jacqueline describe seeing the mammoth foot, uh, when you talk about all of these different ice ages, woolly mammoths were when geologic time really, really recent.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Wooly mammoths first show up on the record about 400,000 years ago, uh, and they go extinct only sometime around 4,000 years ago. So we just missed them. The last uh, <laughs> refuge for these mammoths were islands up the coast of Siberia and Alaska. Um, and if you think about what's going on 4,000 years ago, people are building pyramids. So there mm-hmm. were modern people doing lots of interesting things around the world when we still had mammoths around
2: Wow. (laughs) Jacqueline, you're also an ecologist. So when uh, we think about uh, studying uh, the ecology of the ice age, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. But tell us about when you're when you're finding uh, and researching uh, some of these finds uh, in the Arctic and how you're able to do forensics on them.
0: Yeah, so we we literally use some of the same tools that forensic scientists use to reconstruct a crime scene, except instead Mm -hmm. of you know, tr- tracking a murder, um, we're actually rebuilding an ecosystem from all of the little bits and pieces that it leaves behind. So uh, the pollen that blows off of the flowers and trees that, you know, would have lived in the tundra, some of that pollen settles onto the permafrost or into bogs or lakes. And we can actually take cores of mud, just like an ice core, and and remove that pollen from little slices through time. Um, or, you know, chunks of plants like a, a cone from a, a larch tree or something like that. Um, we also, in, in our lab, we do a lot of work with dung. Um, the dung that these animals leave behind is some of our best evidence about the kinds of, of things that those animals were eating. So we can reconstruct not only their diets and a little bit of their ecology, um, but also some of the landscapes that they lived in, and and draw direct connections between the animals that are walking around and the plants that they were walking through. Um, you know, even. The human story can be told from some of these records as we, uh, everything from, you know, actual material that people would have left behind, like tools, but also some of the material that that is, you know, being found in the these permafrost deposits shows the signs of what looks like human butchering, so knife marks um, or, you know, very precise cuts um, that would indicate that, you know, these animals weren't just out there alone, that they were coexisting with, you uh, with probably multiple subspecies of humans through time. Mm.
2: Can you tell us more about how diverse it was uh, back then? I mean, we were just talking about woolly mammoths, but what were some other uh, megafauna that were alive at that time?
1: Absolutely. Uh, the mammoth steppe was it was an incredibly diverse ecosystem. It was full of very, very large animals like like the woolly mammoths. But of course, you also had animals like bison, um, Siberian horses, you had mm-hmm. woolly uh, Rhino out in, 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 in Eurasia, of course, you have the bears. Uh, you had cave lion, cave hyena, you have wolves. So lots of, lots of different species of large animals.
2: Mm. Again, uh, you're hearing Dr. Advite Zucker, a vertebrate paleontologist at Yale University on Zoom with us and Dr. Jacqueline Gill, associate professor of paleoecology at the Climate Change Institute at University of Maine. Uh, Advait, uh, you, when we think about uh, studying uh, fossil elephants uh, like mammoths, we're thinking about fossilized bones, but how is the information you're getting from the material that's been uncovered in the permafrost that's been thawing uh, different from from what you'd get from
1: Bones. Oh, it's so different. Mm. If you go back in time and study a fossil elephant that's a couple of million years old, you're only gonna get its fossilized bones. Mm. But if you look at these mummies that are coming out of the permafrost, you can actually get flesh. This is something that is unheard of in in the deeper time record. You can get a sense of of, of what the biology of this this animal was actually like. You can get a sense of what their fur was like, what the distribution of the various tissues were like. Um, And most importantly, you can get DNA out of these specimens and with this dna we can start to understand how these animals are actually related to 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 living species and the various kinds of adaptations they might have had to this very unique environment in the ice age
2: Advite, do you have do we have any ideas how many of these specimens are likely preserved in the permafrost
1: uh so my my colleague adrian lister at the national history museum in, in in london once told me that there are probably millions of these carcasses preserved in the permafrost the permafrost has been forming for a long time and there were lots of of these animals out there just dying and getting preserved mm. and as the permafrost melts we're, we're going to start seeing more and more of these of these mummies coming out
2: and Jacqueline uh, when we think about the information that scientists uh, can get from these uh, pre- preserved animals that have been uncovered but also what's in their stomachs what they were eating at that time
0: yeah, so up until really recently, we've we've been fairly limited in terms of our ability to understand what these animals were eating, um, or we could understand in very broad terms, you know, grasses, certain kinds of grasses versus more woody material like shrubs or trees, and we have really great data sets about what the plants were like on the landscape, and then of course we have this, you know, treasure trove of all of these bones that we use to reconstruct the presence or absence of the large animals, but Putting those two pieces together has been really tricky, mm. and very occasionally you can find uh, a, a, a mammoth or something else that has its stomach contents preserved or some dung um, from one of those animals, and that tells you, you know, very directly that this animal was definitely eating something else. And diet is important for for two reasons. One, you know, it's important for us to understand why these animals went extinct, and there's been some discussion and debate about you know, how much of this extinction story is driven by changes in the landscape. Uh, you know, so the climate changes and that changes what plants are available for food. And, you know, a lot of folks for, have thought that as the, the available plants have changed, uh, the, the necessary food for these organisms has you know, disappeared and that that's what drove the extinction. Um, there's another school of thought and the research that we do in our lab um, has supported this to an extent. Um, which is that it, the uh, understanding what these animals eat is actually important for understanding their impacts on the landscape. And mm-hmm. so, you know, this disappearance of what we call the mammoth step may actually have been a consequence of the extinction of these mammoths and, and woolly rhinos and other animals rather than uh, the cause. And that has really big implications for how we understand um, conservation and biodiversity of our largest animals today, which also happen to be some of the most threatened uh, animals on the planet now.
2: Mm. I wonder if you can uh, expand more on that when we think about uh, these extinctions and and the human involvement at the time.
1: Right. Um, one of the most interesting facts about the megafaunal extinction, which is the extinction of, of large mammals weighing over 50 kilograms, is, is that It is a preferential extinction there's a large size bias that means that pretty much everything that went extinct was large and this is something that is unique in the in the 66 million year history of mammals on the planet um and it turns out that your chances of dying or going extinct when you're large only increases uh, in the in the in the later part of the Pleistocene, and it's at this time that humans have left Africa and have spread around the world. Uh, this is actually a pretty good indicator that anthropogenic uh, factors like hunting or habitat change had a pretty strong role to play in the extinction of the megafauna. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't to say that the climate had no ro- role to play. Climate change probably stressed out a lot of these these populations as it normally does. Um, But had people not shown up on the landscape, I don't think we would have seen the same magnitude of of extinction that, that we've seen.
2: Mm, that's interesting. You know, we've been talking about, again, the research and, and what scientists are uh, uncovering because of these carcasses being found uh, in the permafrost. And Jacqueline, we started the top of the show learning about uh, in places where the permafrost is thawing and the impact. And we may assume that uh, these carcasses are just being found because the permafrost is thawing. But what's actually happening uh, where people are able to find these carcasses? It's, it's not not as simple as saying the permafrost is melting.
0: Yeah, so there's a, I, I'm, as these finds are coming out in the news more and more, people are often making this linkage to thawing uh, permafrost. And while of course that does play a role, and and <clears throat> one of the things we should also be concerned about um, is, you know, losing these incredible archives of, of prehistoric information. But the The source of most of these finds is actually um, people. Um, As the global ivory trade has, Mm. uh, there's been a crackdown on the trade of modern ivory because of uh, concerns about elephant conservation. People have actually looked to ancient elephants as a loophole to, there's still a demand for fossil, or for ivory that needs to be met. But if you can meet that demand with fossil ivory, it kind of gets around some of these restrictions about, the the trade for elephant tusks. And a lot of these are going to places like China and that demand is is still there. And so at some point someone figured out, well, we live in a place with potentially millions of of ancient ivory uh, tusks in the ground. And so people have actually started going out in some parts of uh, Siberia and actively looking for these and, and using a hydro mining process Um, basically blasting the permafrost with river water to create these small tunnels um, and caves. And, you know, as they look for tusks, they're uncovering just tremendous amounts of these mummies, everything from, you know, birds to entire bison to um, uh, cave lion cubs and other things you might have seen in the news. And so... Uh, it's it's interesting, but the the thawing permafrost has less to do with most of mm-hmm. these recent discoveries than uh, just a global demand for ivory um, and and folks sort of finding a way around that.
2: That sounds really problematic. And then even the idea of of tunneling and damaging the permafrost, uh, Jacqueline, for these finds.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's um it it's certainly a a, a very conflicting feeling for me as a scientist to. Both, you know, see what's happening on the ground, um, and 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 know, you know, where we get these specimens from, how how we have access to them. Because on the one hand, we would probably not have most of this information. We wouldn't have found these incredible mummies and all the information that they contain if there weren't these people out in the, the Siberian wilderness looking for, uh, you know, woolly rhino horns and uh, ancient. Ivory tusks to to ship off to the to the international market um, through these sort of quasi legal means. On the other hand, you know, when I've been out in the field and I've talked with the tusk hunters, um, you know, I I don't blame them for for using this uh, you know this this way to to get their livelihoods because. For a lot of these folks, they live in very rural areas. They don't have a lot of opportunities. Um, they won't get paid unless they find a tusk, and a tusk can feed a family for a year. And so, um, you know, I, I don't blame them personally. And some of them are, you know, incredible naturalists. They have really interesting observations about what they find in these tunnels. And, um, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, there are very few people who do this uh, compared to the vastness of the Arctic, so it's probably a negligible contribution to any kind of permafrost collapse. The work is incredibly dangerous, um, but it's also not very scientific, right? So when I, when I was out there in the field, you know, see, watching them use a fire hose basically to blast holes in the permafrost, there was so much information that was just being washed into the river, anything, you know, small-bodied, any potential human artifacts. All of that was just sort of being, you know, flushed away um, mm. because, you know, the, the real thing of interest here is the tusks. And so I have this, you know, really conflicting swirl of emotions. Um, you know, even ancient ivory, some people argue, is still supporting a global demand for, for ivory generally, and that can imperil elephants. Um, but, you know, I think it's not necessarily um, cut and dried, right, to be able mm-hmm. to say, oh, you, you're terrible people, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, and, you know, one you know, positive outcome, I guess, if you can say that is, you know, they do have partnerships with local universities and scientists. um, And so when something like a perfectly preserved three-month-old cave lion cub with its claws still sharp um, and its fur, you know, still intact and its whiskers and everything still there, when something like that emerges, at least we can capture that, um, that information with, uh, with all of our, the tools we have at our disposal.
2: I was also thinking, Jacqueline, you know, these communities, especially these indigenous communities, uh, they are least responsible for climate change, but they are the ones that are uh, most affected by it uh, because of what we heard earlier about uh, their homes having to be rebuilt uh, many times a year because of uh, the shifting, the thawing, uh, the flooding, the, the fires. And, you know, it's really problematic for them on the ground.
0: Absolutely. The, you know, it's it's easy for us in the U.S. or many parts of the U.S. to imagine that climate change is something that happens far away to other people. But when I hear from my colleagues and my friends back in Yakutsk, um, the pictures that they send me of the Siberian, the impacts of the Siberian wildfires, it's it's apocalyptic, right? So for them, uh, they're feeling the impacts of this, you know, in, in some of the worst ways. And... Um, and yet, you know, like you said, they're contributing the least to to these problems, and so I think it's important to remember that you know the actions, you know, of people well away from the Arctic are absolutely affecting those in the Arctic, um, just as the Arctic turns around and uh, impacts our day to day lives in ways that we may not appreciate. And so I think it's important to remember that. These are real-world consequences for very real people. Um, you may never meet them, um, but they know a lot about climate change. And they absolutely understand the ways in which this is a global problem.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could uh, jump in and talk about uh, what uh, Jacqueline has shared, You know, this idea that some of the research material coming from this practice is, is linked to the international ivory trade.
1: Absolutely. Um, the international ivory trade has, has been a problem for a long time. Um, and mammoth ivory coming in um, has the potential to, to stop it. But at the same time, there are, there are reports out there which have suggested that people are now masking genuine uh, elephant ivory as, as mammoth ivory to, to sell it on the market. So that becomes problematic. However, as Jacqueline said, it's a fairly small scale industry in Siberia. And I'm not sure how much of an impact it's actually going to have on elephant uh, conservation out there. Mm.
2: You're hearing Dr. Advait Zucker, vertebrate paleontologist at Yale University, and Dr. Jacqueline Gill, associate professor of paleoecology and plant ecology at, at the University of Maine here on Where We Live. We'll continue talking to them after the break. And you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalbeth Program note for next week coming up Tuesday, Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill joins us for the, an- for the hour to answer your questions about absentee ballots and even in-person voting if you plan to vote in person November 3rd. That's coming up on Tuesday. Tuesday. Now today we're talking uh, with my guest, Dr. Jacqueline Gill, Associate Professor of Paleoecology at the Climate Change Institute at University of Maine, and Dr. Advait Zucker, a vertebrate paleontologist at Yale, University. Uh, Jacqueline, again, earlier in this show, we were talking about uh, the impact of the permafrost thawing, uh, the importance of reducing carbon emissions uh, globally to help. But there's some other novel solutions that might help mitigate uh, this damage. There's something called in Siberia a project called Pleistocene Park. Can
0: you tell us the idea behind it? Right. So thinking back to what I was saying about the the important ecological role that these animals might have had, um, There's a thought that having large herbivores in the Arctic helps to make uh, these Arctic ecosystems more resilient to climate change, Mm -hmm. Um, both uh, in terms of the the ways in which herbivores play special keystone roles in shaping and maintaining their ecosystems, just like we would think of an an elephant in the African savanna today, plays an important role in building the savanna. but also the, there, there's some preliminary evidence that suggests that having big animals might help to keep carbon into the permafrost uh, by keeping that permafrost from thawing. So if you imagine, you know, these animals don't get to, um, you know, hop on a plane to warmer climates in the winter time. They would, you know, they would have to uh, stay around and, and make it through that, um, you know, dark Arctic uh, winter nights. And, um, you know, the, the solution there is to brush uh, the snow away to reach the, the ground and the vegetation below. And so that action of physically brushing and moving the snow away um, would expose the ground um, and basically lifts off that kind of blanket of uh, of the uh, that the snow provides, which actually keeps the ground, you know, having lots of snow on the ground keeps the ground uh, less cold in a lot of ways. And that can be important for lots of other animals too. Um, but in this case, if they're brushing the snow away, they're exposing the ground, it stays, it gets colder, it may th- sort of thicken or deepen that, um, that freeze layer in the, in the permafrost, which could then help keep some of that carbon in the ground if that permafrost doesn't thaw as much in the summertime or under warming conditions. And so folks are testing this hypothesis using some of our remaining ice age herbivores, things like musk oxen, bison, um, and horses and some of these other animals in a place uh, uh, near Chersky in uh, Siberia called Mm. Pleistocene Park. And so there's a big fenced in enclosure um, and uh, they, you know, have been releasing more and more animals over the years. I think the bison just showed up last year. Um, And so uh, scientists, including our team, are now studying the effects that these large animals have on the plants that grow in the area. And also, you know, the impacts of those animals on the soil, on the permafrost conditions itself, on the carbon that gets trapped in the ground. And you know, it's a, it's a kind of a moonshot type idea, but mm. you know, it's possible that having big animals in the Arctic, you know, could forestall some of the worst impacts of, of climate change. Mm,
2: you mentioned a moonshot. Is this idea also controversial?
0: It's controversial because, you know, like any new idea, there's, you know, we still need to to do some groundwork, um, but it's also controversial because of its ties to the idea of de-extinction, um, which is mm. bringing back extinct animals using their genetic material that that's found in some of these fossils. And folks might've been hearing, you know, for some time now that, oh, within five years, we'll have a woolly mammoth cloned. Um, it seems like within five years has been going on for about 20 years now, but, um, and, you know, at first, the idea was just to do it for its own sake. And now you start, you're starting to hear people say, well, maybe we could do this to, uh, to reintroduce woolly mammoths into the Arctic as part of some sort of global warming mitigation strategy. Um, this is still a science fiction idea, but mm. the underlining um, uh, scientific ideas behind it, um, you know, there, there's some merit there. Um, so we can you know, potentially use things like musk oxen or protect the large herbivores that we have now um, and you know, help to appreciate the role that they might play in the ecosystem. Mm.
2: Uh, Jacqueline mentioned the extinction as uh, advite uh, again. Uh, some who are interested in bringing back, as she mentioned, woolly mammoths from extinction by maybe cloning DNA found in preserved samples. Advite,
1: yeah. So this this I, I idea has been around for for a long time and my opinion may be unpopular, but I'm not a fan of bringing back an extinct species. These, these animals went extinct a long time ago. And mm. as far as we know, their ecosystem is gone. One of the problems in bringing back a woolly mammoth is that we just don't have all of the, the genetic material of, of, of available to bring it back. The second issue is that there are some labs that are trying to take genetic material from a a mammoth and then splice it into uh, the genome from an Asian elephant and then create some kind of a a hybrid. Now, this is not going to be a a woolly mammoth. It's going to be some kind of a mammophant, if if you will. Um, And these these animals, which are then born to uh, Asian elephants, are not going to know how to behave like mammoths because they're not. Um, And even if we end up reading them, uh, we're going to need a lot of these individuals up in the Arctic to actually uh, do the ecosystem engineering that uh, that we hope that they would do. And that's just a lot of time and money spent on something that I just don't think is, is, is going to have that, that big of an impact on climate change mitigation. I think it would be better uh, a better use of the money if we actually spent it on conservation and and conserving the, 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 the three species of, of, of living elephant today and use other forms of climate change mitigation and adaptation, like actually cutting down on greenhouse gases.
2: It definitely does sound a very sci-fi advite, the mamma yeah. font, as you, as you said, um, can we talk a little bit more earlier where you had mentioned, uh, you know, the, the last, uh, the last ice age and, and what we may be able to learn from that Pleistocene extinction when we think about what's happening today with our planet?
1: It's actually very important uh, for conservation today. So a lot of these big animals went extinct because because a lot of them um, had biological traits that made them more uh, vulnerable. For example, large animals are slow breeders. Uh, Large animals need a lot of food. And because of this, uh, and because of these slow reproductive strategies, it takes a long time for the population to get, re- to get replaced. In times of stress, large animals like elephants and, and hippos will, will, will not breed. Uh, what we're seeing in these megafaunal extinctions is that climate change is stressing these populations out. They're fragmenting them and constricting gene flow, which means that, that these animals aren't, in, aren't interbreeding. And so the genetic stock is, is, is deteriorating over time and then what we've seen is that a small amount of hunting is coming in um, and wiping them out Um, so what we're seeing today is climate change occurring at a rate that has not been seen in the past we already have uh, fragmented populations um, and we have uh, habitat change and, and, and hunting going on at an unprecedented rate and Basically, whatever we've seen in the Pleistocene is being accelerated now. And if we don't stop it, we're just going to see the extinction of the bees to the point where the largest animal on the planet is going to be a cow.
0: Mm.
2: Jacqueline, we just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to hear your thoughts about lessons that we can take uh, uh, thinking about how to address climate change today.
0: I think one of the most important lessons for me that comes out of these natural experiments in past climate change is that, Extinctions have consequences and when we lose something like an elephant or a rhino from the landscape We're not just losing really interesting biodiversity that has value for its own sake Um, We're losing all of the things that that animal does in its ecosystem And especially when we're talking about some of you know these what we call ecosystem engineers or foundational species um, we're losing a lot of services including you know in some cases the creation or maintenance of entire ecosystems that other animals really rely on so anything from moving nutrients around to uh to dispersing seeds to maintaining an open habitat Um, we see this in places like africa today um and we thought of you know we often think of the uh the arctic as the serengeti of the ice age and so Mm -hmm. if you can imagine uh, you know as many or more large animals roaming around in the arctic just 20,000 years ago, as we might see in an African savanna now, you can get some sense of how much we've lost. And so, you know, we have this experiment where uh, losing woolly mammoths, you know, it's too late to save them, but the lessons that they've left behind in the fossil record might help us to, you know, protect elephants, but also the ecosystems that elephants live in now.
2: It's mm, an important point to end on. Dr. Jacqueline Gill, Associate Professor of Paleoecology at the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine. Thank you for your time today.
0: Thanks. It was a pleasure.
2: And Dr. Advait Zucker, vertebrate paleontologist at Yale University. Advait, a really interesting conversation. You've given us a lot to think about. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff, our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can listen to Where We Live anytime. Just download it on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We hope you have a great weekend.